I feel like at the end of the day, it's really the question is why. And if you answer the why, everything else is possible. Welcome to this episode of The Circled Square, the podcast where we talk about teaching Buddhism in higher education. My name is Sarah Richardson from the Ho Center for Buddhist Studies at the University of Toronto. In this episode, we sat down with Vanessa Sasson. Vanessa is a professor of religious studies in the Liberal and Creative Arts and Humanities Department at Marianopolis College, Quebec. Now, when we spoke with Vanessa, this was our very first podcast recording we ever did. So it was so much fun. We were totally new to the game. It was snowing outside. And actually, the whole event was really exciting. Vanessa had also just come off of a book tour for her first novel. She's written academic books before, but this is a new kind of project. She'd just written Yashodara, a novel about the Buddha's wife. So we ended up speaking quite a lot about how your perspective changes when you inhabit a different position in the text or on the text. So enjoy this episode with Vanessa, Inhabiting the Stories, Buddhism from the Inside. Welcome. So we're here speaking with Vanessa Sasson today. Vanessa is the a professor of religious studies in the Liberal and Creative Arts and Humanities Department at Marianopolis College in Quebec, in Montreal, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and she is also a research fellow for the International Institute for Studies in Race, Reconciliation and Social Justice at the University of Free State in South Africa, as well as adjunct professor at the Faculty of Religious Studies at McGill University, uh, my alma mater oh. uh, in Montreal. Yeah, did my undergrad there. Yeah. Um, uh, as a scholar, her focus is on Buddhist studies with a particular emphasis on hagiography, uh, gender, and childhoods. And uh, we're very excited to have Vanessa here with us today as our inaugural guest on our thank podcast. Thank you so much. So thank you so much for joining us, Vanessa. I'm very glad to be here. And welcome to Toronto. Um, so we, this is, as you know, a podcast that we're starting about teaching Buddhism or teaching about Buddhism in higher education. And the reason we wanted to start this podcast was we're, we're so often talking almost exclusively about our research, but many of us teach too and teach in private. And um, I mean, it's not private. In some ways, it's very public. But in another sense, we don't get to often talk with colleagues about it. So the goal of this is to talk with our colleagues about the interesting mediations and choices and negotiations that we're making in our teaching. So that is what I hope to speak with you about today. Um, So... Yeah, can you tell us a little bit about uh, where you teach and who your students are? Um, so I teach in different places, but my main, my tenured position is at Marianopolis. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a special uh, system in Quebec that we don't have elsewhere in Canada. It's a two-year program, uh, pre-university. So students do five years of high school. They finish at grade 11 um, and then do two years of college and then do three years of university. So the amount of time they do their education is the same as Ontario, but it's parceled out differently. So what kind of level or background do your students come in with, especially as it relates to Buddhist studies? Probably not that different from anywhere else. Mm -hmm. Um, Marianopolis is a really, um, it's an excellent school, very driven students, very ambitious, very bright kids. Uh, But they have the same romantic idealism that just about everyone else seems to have in the West of this expectation that everything about Buddhism is lovely and sweet, that Buddhists never go to war, 
that's, you know, everything about Buddhism makes sense, that it's not even really a religion, it's a philosophy, which apparently is better um, because religion is by definition negative. And so this is what makes Buddhism higher. So I come across this all the time. I come across it in university settings and college settings and public talks is this expectation that Buddhism somehow doesn't fit all the problematic criteria that all the other religions do. And that's why it's better. And so I feel like I spend most of my time trying to undo that, which then makes me feel really bad. But I feel like to get to a point where we can have a critical discussion, we have to kind of deal with that romantic idealism. But how do you do that? How do you start to disabuse people of <laughs> I these I disappoint them. <laughs> uh, there's like some standard examples you can always use to just really get the point across, some awful realities. Um, <clears throat> scandals, sex scandals of monks all over the place. Um, incidents of violence like in Sri Lanka and Japan. And so there's some easy things that you can do. It always stuns the students. But um, usually I always start my classes with a discussion about knowing what your assumptions are before you start. Mm -hmm. That if we're really going to learn anything, if, whether it's about Buddhism or anything else, you first have to know what you already think. Mm -hmm. Because if your mind is full to the brim, there's no space for me to offer an alternative. Mm -hmm. So I tell them, I don't need to know what your assumptions are. Those are private. <clears throat> we all have them. We also have bigotries and prejudices and sexism. We all have them. We don't need to say them out loud. I don't think that helps. But we should know what they are and kind of almost imagine your mind as a platter mm -hmm. and put all your thoughts kind of down on the table and say, these are some of the things I expect from this topic. And if you could start seeing them, then we can start looking at, well, are they really true? What can we, are there alternative arguments? And so I do a lot of discussion about looking at what your pre-established assumptions are, that no education will ever happen if your mind is already full. Because otherwise I can do an entire semester and they will just find a way to reorient themselves and go back to their original confirmation. So every example I would give would just be like, but that's an exception. Real Buddhism isn't like that. So it doesn't give me much space to really treat the tradition in a complex manner. Mm -hmm. So I think that's really important. Yeah. And do you do that through writing? Like, do you ask them to write about their assumptions? Or? No, it's through discussion. Okay. It's, I don't, because it's not something that they need to share. I think it's very private. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you don't even know what you expect until something else is presented. But just kind of have that conversation going a lot. Uh, and then I don't have to constantly be in a position of giving them every bad example. Because I don't think that's nice for the tradition either. Mm -hmm. You know, the tradition isn't just a bunch of disappointments. It's not a romantic ideal. It's a complex human phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And we should have some kind of ability to deal with that. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and that point you made about so many students seeing Buddhism first now as a philosophy and not a religion, yeah. I hear that all the time. So how, how do you discuss that with them in a productive way? Because I find that's a really tough one to encounter. Well, it's a, I think the easiest way to go about it is to figure out, well, what is our definition of religion? And if we can establish that, it's pretty easy from there, is that, and also, why do we expect it to be a philosophy? What do we get out of seeing it as a philosophy? So there's a bunch of different conversations we can have that will help us unpack it. So on the one hand, a religion, the word religion in English is also pretty evasive. So it doesn't really help us. We don't have a clear cut definition. It means to yoke or to bind, right? So it could be binding anything. Um, so the word in English is evasive. Uh, what we can do is talk about criteria that we expect to see 
that would belong to a religion. And I think most people have Abrahamic criteria. So the criteria is that there's a creator God. That seems to be everybody's go-to point. But if that's the only thing that makes a religion a religion, then you've just eliminated almost everybody except for the Abrahamics. So when they start to see that, then there's space to say, well, okay, so what else makes a religion a religion? Is it having a place of worship, having clergy, having a religious calendar, having certain rituals of initiation? Like we can start creating a, um, a baseline of things we tend to expect to be in a religion. God or gods isn't part of it, but it's part of like a richer discussion of, you know, expectations. Uh, philosophies don't have those. Philosophies don't have rituals of initiation. They might, but you don't expect it. They don't have religious calendars. They don't have clergy. They don't have places of worship. They might create a place of worship, but then the philosophy starts to become a religion. <laughs> it's not, a, you know. So once we've established some criteria of what a religion tends to include, then we can look at, well, does Buddhism include these? And when they start to realize it has a religious calendar, it has clergy, it has rituals of initiation, it has funerary rituals, all of these things, we can say, well, then maybe it's not a philosophy. And when you go to a Buddhist country, it's not just adults sitting in meditation thinking their way towards awakening. It's this rich tapestry of experiences. And you see it all the time. So that imagination starts to develop. But that's disappointing to a lot of them. They really want it to be a philosophy. So then the question is, why do we want that? Mm -hmm. And I think um, I've thought about this uh, a lot over the years. And I think religion is somehow primitive. Philosophy is higher. We uh, prize the mental, mm -hmm. right, and sophisticated doctrine. Um, Religion is for children, it's it's like fairy tales, it's not real. And also I think for a lot of Westerners who are, you know, disappointed with Abrahamic traditions, to exchange one religion for another is not a great move because you're going from one thing that will prove itself to be corrupt and institutionalized to another. But if you go from religion to a philosophy, then you've lifted yourself in the ranks. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's a lot of those personal needs that are happening that make it that we want it to be a philosophy. And so once you can start identifying some of those trends, it's easier to have the conversation. You realize, oh, maybe that is what I wanted from it, or I just want it to be different, right? Abrahamic religions have disappointed me. The Catholic Church has disappointed me. Whatever religion you're part of has upset me for X, Y, and Z reason, but Buddhism is going to be different. Yeah. And that's also our kind of our, our optimism as a human species we want something out there to be good <laughs> you know mm -hmm. we don't want to know that it's made a mess mm -hmm. and we get so upset when religions make a mess mm -hmm. it's like it's not allowed mm -hmm. and if that's how we operate we're going to be disappointed all the time yeah. so you have to understand why we want what we want yeah yeah so i want us to go to ask you to go back a little bit how did what was your formation in this field like how did how did you come to the study of buddhism and Oh, why? <laughs> why or how? <laughs> no. I know. Oh, <laughs> well, I mean, I was always interested in religion. Mm -hmm. And I was also always disappointed. That's mm -hmm. for sure. Um, I always had that kind of personal quest inside of me that I needed to understand. I needed to know. Um, my family is Jewish um, mm -hmm. from the Middle East. And I remember being very disappointed and feeling like it wasn't really living up to its ideals. And um, when I was in my 20s, I was a terrible student. 
and skipped all my classes because <laughs> I was bored and uh, finally decided I was going to go get a business job in Japan. And so I was very good at business and studied Japanese and I was going to move to Japan and I had a job waiting for me. And I made a stop in Nepal and uh, I wanted to see the mountains before I sold my soul to the big industry. <laughs> and I had a suitcase full of suits and stockings because I was told everybody wears stockings in Japan back then. So I had all these stockings in my suitcase. And I stopped in Nepal and I didn't get back on the plane. <laughs> really? Wow. <laughs> and so I left my suitcase in the basement of Kathmandu Guesthouse. And I just hung out in Nepal for a year until they kicked me out. Wow. And I fell in love with Buddhism and I felt like I was had all the romantic idealism that I accused my students of mm -hmm. and just floated around Nepal and northern India. And then when I came home, I said, I need to know what I just saw. Mm -hmm. And so I started studying. Mm -hmm. that I'm was still a, studying. That was a wonderful story. <laughs> it's a I don't story. Know why I don't tell it. That's a great story. Yeah. I, I had to go get my suitcase before I left Nepal. <laughs> <laughs> what happened to the like stockings? All oh, I threw them all out. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> <laughs> and I've never really worn stockings since. I mm -hmm. don't wear them. It's like mm -hmm. anathema. Mm -hmm. Can't do it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So this is Kathmandu in the 90s? Maybe? Yeah. 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 It's fun. So a different world from even now, probably, in oh, some ways. Oh, it's so different now. Mm. Yeah, it's changed a lot. Mm -hmm. Well, amazing. Yeah, I, I, was, I was selfishly asking because I think I similarly also started with a lot of the same illusions that I now try to... <laughs> We're like, how could you think such things, my even though I built my life on them? <laughs> 18-year-old students from believing. Right. <laughs> but, yeah. Um, so I was wondering, in your classes, or in, in your teaching now, um, so you've told us you often use discussion to get people kind of more aware of, their, of the landscape of their prior beliefs um, and assumptions. What other, do you do activities or anything in the classroom to try to kind of get students physical or moving or drawing or any other kind of active learning strategies that you found effective? Um, it's hard. I think I'm a very instinctive teacher. Mm -hmm. Even though I, I know I think about teaching a lot, there's a part of me that remains very instinctual about it. And so sometimes I find I struggle with identifying what exactly is happening. Um, so I, I suspect if somebody came into my classroom, they would probably see all that kind of stuff that you're describing, but I don't realize I'm doing it most of the time. Uh, I just need my students engaged. And my students know this, that, and I tell them, if you're bored, I'm bored, everybody's bored. like, I can't. And I can't have my academic career based on hours of boredom every week. So this has got to be fun for all of us, or I'm just going to turn into a robot. So it's as it's a much of an imperative for my life as it is for them in the classroom that we have to do this together. Um, and so I need them to participate. I need them to be with me on this. It's got to be our journey together. And they, f I think they just feel that. And I'm, and I'm genuinely interested in hearing what they have to say. Mm -hmm. And I think that more than anything, whatever activity that you may create or not, there's a lot of emphasis today on pe pedagogical tools and strategies. There's a lot of effort on how to teach that is coming out, um, which is great. I don't think we did that 30 years ago. But I feel like at the end of the day, it's really the question is why. Mm -hmm. And if you answer the why, everything else is possible. I need to know why I'm teaching. They need to know why they're taking the course. And if we can answer that question, they're in. Mm -hmm. I don't even have to really convince them. Mm -hmm. I don't need to, f f I mean, I'm probably doing stuff with them in the classroom, but I don't have to think about it too much because we're in. 
So we're trying to do it. It's like when you do your graduate school, you know your why. You really want to learn this. When you're an undergraduate, it's not always obvious. So I feel like we need to put more emphasis and time into answering the question why with them. Mm-hmm. And I do it with them a lot. So at every assignment, I'll say, this is why I want you to do the assignment this way. Mm-hmm. And I have to have reasons. And I tell them, if my reasons don't sound good enough, you should challenge me. There has to, I have to be able to answer the question why at every stage. Right? Why are we studying this? Why are we reading this? Why are you writing this? And if they know it and they know it's important, you know, it's like we've all signed the contract. Mm-hmm. I find that helps more than every other kind of pedagogical trick. Have you had students challenge you with the why? On They'll the, ask. Yeah. And they, I usually they've realized I usually have an answer. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if I don't, then I'll give it up. But usually it's but I've thought about it a lot. Mm-hmm. To me, this is really important. Mm-hmm. Right. Is that we have to all know why we're doing this. Mm-hmm. There has to be a reason for them to take an intro to Buddhism course, because if they're just taking it to fill their schedule, that's the worst reason to get an education, mm-hmm. right? If you're writing an assignment just because your teacher wants you to, mm-hmm. nothing will kill you faster. <laughs> you know, like it's it's like intellectual death. But if they know that there's a reason and they're aiming for something and I'm trying to lead them somewhere, they'll get on board a lot more easily. Yeah. So what is your what is your why? What what do you think you can do in the teaching of Buddhist studies that is of value to students who aren't maybe going on in this or anything related? But what's what is the why? Of, well, that's yeah. the best question, right? <laughs> um, on the most basic level, for the students who are just taking it because it fits their schedule or they're in a different program or whatever it is, um, I think that the more you learn about the world the more engaged a global citizen you become. And I give them examples of places in which things have gone really wrong. So one of the examples that I give, and I kind of feel bad doing this here, but um, do you know about the true religion genes? No. Oh, I show them pictures. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, oh, as in a, it's a brand? It's a brand. Okay, yes. So the true religion genes came out a couple years ago, and they've probably been around longer, I don't know. I saw students wearing them, and I was shocked. On the back pocket is a picture of the laughing Buddha, Budai, right, playing a banjo. And this is their insignia, like this is their brand image. And it's on the back pocket, so you sit on it. Some of the genes actually had um, like a tapestry, it's not a tapestry, but they sewn into the back pocket, embroidered, thank you, images of yabums that they would put on the back pocket that you then sit on because they thought they were exotic, cool images. This is devastating. So you're sitting on images that are either sacred or supposed to be sacred or pointing to something that is sacred, but isn't. It's not, you know, consecrated. The laughing Buddha with a banjo is just ridiculous and mean, making a mockery of a tradition. And then you sit on it. And if nothing else, you want to learn about this so that whatever field you go into, you don't inadvertently, because I'm sure the people who made these genes are not going out to hate Buddhists and do something terrible. It's just because they don't know. And to me, that's heartbreaking, that with all the access to information that we have, that a really successful brand can be out there in the world doing something so harmful in what I'm assuming is not intended. Mm -hmm. And so whatever you go into, you want to participate in the world where you don't have bigotry flying out of your mouth accidentally. Mm -hmm. And we all do it. We all accidentally say something bigoted or prejudiced. And then we, you know, but then... An educated person 
will pull it back and go, wait a minute, I think that was racist or I think that was sexist. I have to think about what I just said. Mm-hmm. And you learn from it and you don't repeat it. Mm-hmm. And I, it's not that we don't ever have those in our minds. It's that we have a different relationship to it. And what I think you have to learn, whether you're taking an anthropology course or a Buddhism course or anything, is that you want to be interested in the world. You want to participate in it in a way that is helpful and constructive and not hurt people. And we inadvertently hurt people all the time because we're just not taking them seriously. We're not paying attention. We're not honoring them. Mm-hmm. And so on the most basic level, you want to learn about Buddhism because it's a tradition that is practiced all over the world that has something between 500 million and a billion adherents, depending who counts and who's included in the counting. Mm-hmm. And in the process, you might actually become interested mm-hmm. and you might actually like what you're learning. But even if you don't like it, at least you're not out in the world doing things that are really harmful, right? So that you're going to business, you go into marketing, you go into policymaking, you have a sense that Buddhists are people and some things are important to them. And you develop a curiosity the more you learn. I know that the more I study, my curiosity is not waning. I have read way more books than I did 20 years ago. I'm not done. So I have a feeling that learning is contagious. And I'd like them to be imbued with that. You know, I want them to get that curiosity going. So on the basic level, this is why I think they should learn. Yeah, that's a great answer. Thank you. Um, so in in a kind of intro to Buddhism scenario or a Buddhism 101 or whatever you call a kind of survey course, what? how do you do it? I mean, one of the struggles we all have, of course, is Buddhism happened a long time ago and happens then in really different ways all over the world and is still going on now. So how how do you... How do you deal with the vastness of the topic? Well, you first of all have to tell them it's really vast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that they're just beginning a journey. That if they, I mean, one of the things I think is good to remind students is if you've taken an, an intro course into Buddhism or mechanics or anything else, you're not an expert by the time you've finished. Mm-hmm. And to always have that humility that there's so many more things that you have to learn that we're just kind of scratching the surface and I'm introducing you to a really big world. And if you're excited, go take the next course, Mm -hmm. right? And read another book. And if you're not, you've got some exposure and that's good. Mm -hmm. But I don't think we can, we should put that too much on ourselves with one course. So I find that more and more, I like to be focused in my courses and use examples that give them a sense of the breadth without doing, you can't do everything. So The survey courses, um, I had a teacher who told me a long time ago when I was a graduate student, he said that survey courses always go to junior faculty, and he thought it should be the other way around. He thought that the more like specialized courses should go to recent graduates because they're so in their topic, and that survey courses should be taught by the most senior faculty because then you're in a position to really be able to speak with the breadth. It's very difficult to do and to do well. So my my trajectory has been to avoid the surveys, even though I pretend it's a survey course in my title. Um, I don't do them very much. I try to choose examples that give them a sense of it, but not, it's always gonna be small. Mm-hmm. And I'm okay with aiming for smaller. Mm-hmm. Can, can you give us an example of like, what's a kind of like, Certain, certain topic that you've chosen within 
Well, one course that um, I couldn't get out of <laughs> is a world religions course that they always do. Those are really hard to teach. Mm -hmm. That's the ultimate survey course. It's impossible. Um, so what I've done with that course is I've turned it into, I've used a specific example and looked at it from every tradition's, not every tradition, a few traditions and perspectives. Mm -hmm. So I've uh, focused it on death rituals. So the entire course is going from one religion to another, talking about how communities deal with death from one to the next. All they learn is that. And even then, I'm only scratching the surface because then you start to realize how much there is to say. But if they can see how the Jewish community interacts with death and how the Christian communities tend to react to death and Islamic communities and what they prioritize and then Hinduism and Buddhism, and you, go, you do your survey, but you're teaching one thing. Mm -hmm. In that example... They see what the tradition prioritizes. They see, you know, are they going to focus more on the afterlife or on the morning rituals, how they dispose of the dead. So much of what's important to a community comes out in how they do that. Mm -hmm. So if I just teach that through that example, they've already learned a lot. They've learned that religions are different. They've learned that they have different interests, that what's important, the afterlife focus of one tradition is not the focus of another. You start to realize... What's so interesting is that students tend to have difficulty realizing that religions have different interests. We have this, like, because we always say this stock phrase, I think it actually comes from Vivekananda, all religions are the same. I think he started that, <laughs> right? And um, I think there's a really great, you know, instinct in that. And on some level, I'm sure it's true, but it's not the level that we operate on as academics. Mm -hmm. And what I think students have to engage with and that we have to engage them in is that religions are not all the same and that religions are not interested in all the same things. So there's some things they will all agree on. You got to deal with your dead bodies. But I think everyone agrees on that. But how they do it and where they're going to put their energy is totally different from one community to the next. Mm -hmm. And then you get a sense of really appreciating difference. And not just putting it all under a blanket and say all religions. Are, mm -hmm. It's such an empty statement. It doesn't get us anywhere as scholars, mm -hmm. right? As like humanists, it's good. But if we're going to think a little more strategically and, and have a bit more precision in our thinking, which is what our goal is to teach, then they have to see how they differ. Yeah. And we have to teach them to be able to engage with difference and not just say, I don't like that. So... So you've just written this really wonderful book um, that is a work of fiction, yeah. an, an imaginative, creative work. Um, so can you tell us a bit about your choice to do that? How did how did you come about to choose to after a long legacy of of academic writing? Mm -hmm. How did you choose to start writing creative work that is based also you want in the that true answer? <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> the true. <laughs> Because um, I can like fluff it up, but uh, it's probably just like a midlife crisis. <laughs> <laughs> those are the best. I right? know. Those, but it's just that I've had so many. I'm not really mm. sure if that's what it is. My first was when I was 11. <laughs> hey, yeah. Lucky you. These sound like moments of awakening. I but. keep having them. <laughs> I don't know if they're awakening. Um, yeah, I think I, I mean, there's a whole, there's just like your first difficult question. I think there's like a lot of ways I can answer that question. Mm. Um, on the one hand, it was... There was a real question inside of me of, okay, so I've done all of this academic writing. I've produced a lot of books. I'm very happy with what I've been doing. I love every research project I've worked on. I feel very grateful for the privilege of scholarship. Um, but is this all I'm good at? 
That's kind of the question I felt myself suddenly stumped by, you know. I was just, can I do anything else? Or is this, you know, because there's a point at which when you're a scholar, you realize there's like a pattern to this, right? You do your research, you know what you're looking for, make an argument, and then it's like fill in the fill in the blanks, you know, and all of a sudden your academic writing looks pretty similar from one to the next because you're just filling in the blanks. And then you put in your footnotes and you do bibliography and there's like a, it's a set system. It's a very good system. It taught me everything that I know now. So it's not no disparagement of that. But at one point, it became very formulaic. Mm -hmm. And so the question was, is there anything else I can do? Or is this it? And I'm just going to do this for the rest of my life till I die, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which is an academic is a reasonable question to ask yourself. Mm -hmm. It's not true in other fields. But uh, in academia, you could be doing the same thing for 40 years. Mm -hmm. And that's nice. But I needed to kind of spread my wings a little bit and find out if I had anything else in me. Mm-hmm. So that's one answer. Yeah. And did you, I mean, this work has been really exciting to read for me. Thank um, you. Did you want it to be an intervention in, I mean, I, I think in reading this, I I was facing for for the first time a realization of how much I was missing, <laughs> how, how long I've been kind of naturalized into um, a system where I wasn't actually attendant to the lack of female voice for the Mm. most part in the texts I'm looking at or whatever um but so reading this for me was really exciting to to have a space to imagine that again so were you how how did you choose then to yeah to intervene in that way and and create something I don't know Mm. I just know I needed to do it Mm -hmm. so there was this there was a need inside of me to find out what else I could do that was for sure um, but it was clear to me that if there was anything else I would do, I would write her. I don't know why, but that was, I've been focusing on the Buddha's hagiography for most of my academic life, and <clears throat> she's there. And I've ignored her and focused on him the way all of us have. Mm-hmm. And it just dawned on me one day of just, she was there. Mm-hmm. I want to know what her story was. And I didn't want to study it as an, I mean, I, I studied it academically, but I didn't want to write it academically. Mm-hmm. I wanted I wanted to play. Mm-hmm. I wanted to become her. I wanted to be mad at him. Like I wanted to engage in the tradition. Something that I tell my students all the time that I hadn't really figured out, even though I said it all the time, was that Buddhism reinvents itself at every stage of its journey. Right. It's a it's a moving religion. And everywhere it goes, it takes it's like a chameleon. Right. It just moves to Sri Lanka and it becomes Sinhalese and then it moves to China and it becomes Chinese and it goes to Japan and becomes Japanese. This is what Buddhism does. It takes on the colors and the tastes and the flavors of every culture it moves to. And now it's here. So I felt like if Buddhism does this all the time and now it's here. Then isn't that an invitation that I get to do this? I mean, if people in China 2,000 years ago or 1,800 years ago could engage with the tradition, they'd have to be like awakened saints. They would just engage with the tradition and reinvent it and carve it anew and paint it anew and describe it anew. Then isn't that the offer? There was a little mischievousness in me of just, well, (laughs) if that's how the tradition operates, then why can't I do it? So it was very audacious. What happens if I participate in the tradition instead of stand outside it. Mm-hmm. What will I see? And what was so interesting is that I couldn't have done it without my academic training. 
And now my academic thinking is different. So it changed something because I climbed into it, whereas before I was always standing outside it. And when you climb into a text, it becomes three-dimensional. So I felt like I was seeing things all around me in ways that I never imagined before. I saw the Buddha, I saw scenes that were missing in the text that never have been written, that I never noticed were missing, right? There was all kinds of things that I realized about the tradition that I don't think I ever could have seen without writing it this way. Mm. So it became a really interesting intellectual exercise at the same time. Can you give us an example of the scene, a scene that came to you that you realized yeah. that you'd been missing your whole life, but was there, but wasn't there? Yes. Yeah. What? Um, the scene of the Buddha and Yashodara when he comes back. Mm. There are so many texts that describe him returning. So after he goes and he becomes the Buddha, he comes back. Um, some texts have him staying in a grove and the whole community comes to see him. And in those versions, she's there and she goes to the grove with the whole community and she goes to see him. But in other texts, he comes to the palace and everyone goes to the courtyard to honor his arrival and everybody's at his feet and the women go and the servants go, everybody goes, except for her. She refuses, right? And so she looks at him from a window, but she will not come down. And which is her audaciousness, I think, Mm -hmm. you know, and she's like, oh, if Mm -hmm. he wants to see me, he can come Mm -hmm. see me by himself. Mm -hmm. So there's, to me, that was a very strong, I don't think I realized how powerful you could interpret that scene as that of all she refuses she's not subservient and she views herself as someone different that she's not on the same level as everyone else which i don't think i would have appreciated without climbing into her so she goes back to her room and he goes to see her which is a fascinating moment right is that he's still acting like her husband as though he can still go see her and so i'm thinking they're not they're still kind of bound in a different way because he goes to see her. He doesn't go to see anyone else separately, but just her. So she has a special place. But then the scene that is described in Mahavastu and in you know the MSV and a few other places, she falls at her, his feet or she tries to seduce him or she brings him cakes, which is another way of saying, I mean, the seducing thing is a really strong thing. And that's kind of it. And there's no discussion. And then he takes his son and walks away. So I figure there's a missing scene here. He must have told her he's taking his son to the forest. When did that conversation happen? Or did he just do it without consulting her? I don't think so. He couldn't have just taken his son without telling her. Mm -hmm. So then that moment's missing. Mm -hmm. And I haven't seen it anywhere except for the seduction scenes. But they don't, they're like two, three lines. They're not developed scenes. So how did he tell her? I, that fascinated me. And how, what did she say? And how did they respond? And what did it feel like? Mm-hmm. And why didn't they imagine that scene? Mm-hmm. That was, that's what really troubles me. So were the authors of the tradition uncomfortable and didn't want to have this scene in there? Like how, what, where's that scene? Mm-hmm. Why do you think other writers earlier in the tradition wouldn't have had had space narrative space for the that scene or scenes like it i mean maybe they did and they just didn't think of doing it um but one of the thoughts that i've had going through this literature is her sadness that is described in the buddha charita and and, i mean so many texts medieval uh, sinhalese texts and noari texts they're everywhere 
she has so much pain and she's so sad when he leaves. And the literature is so poetic in its descriptions of her sadness and her loss. To me, there this means, and this is something that I think we haven't, I haven't written about this yet, but we haven't really addressed, uh, that we've really kind of, with the rise of feminist discourse and kind of rereading traditions through women's eyes, which we really needed to do, we realize all the patriarchal elements and all the ways in which women have been lost to the tradition. But what I started feeling was, yes, this is still true, but these male authors were also very sensitive to her pain because of how they describe it. And that's something that I haven't really heard anyone discuss yet is this, it's quite amazing that these male authors from 2000 years ago or 1500 years ago were able to write such poetic, beautiful, almost songs of anguish in mm-hmm. her name it means they understood her pain as the woman who was left behind. Mm-hmm. So I don't know that this is like a patriarchal absence. Mm-hmm. So maybe the pain was too difficult to imagine now telling her, how do you mm-hmm. keep the Buddha a good guy and have him say, now I'm taking my son after everything I've done to you. Mm-hmm. So maybe it was too hard to write. or may- I don't know. Mm-hmm. But I have questions that I didn't have before mm-hmm. as a result of writing this book. Yeah, I'm curious about you know, Ashvagosha, and I'm curious about these Sinhalese writers and what were they feeling when they imagined her loss? Mm -hmm. But they knew her loss. They're not just patriarchal, you know, dominant jerks who didn't care about women. They cared about her. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's also a voice that I don't think I appreciated before. Yeah, and you and you start the book with that with that amazing scene retold of her, of her preparing her son and preparing to yeah. let go. That's also a scene and, that's not in the tradition. And, but you do a beautiful job with it, also of of casting her not only as a victim, right? She's also not only upset. Oh, she she's finding be. incredible strength in that right. moment, which I thought was really. I mean, what and what you do throughout the book then is also in spaces where we've often heard only about pain you've found other emotions too like incredible resilience and she would have had to have it Mm -hmm. she was his wife Mm -hmm. and also what I think I came away with after writing this book was she was with him for lifetimes if he is supposed to be the tradition's great being He is the master of the universe. I mean, he is the greatest. He's the Tathagata. He's like the supreme, right? The cosmos explodes with enthusiasm when he's born, right? This is the one. Mm -hmm. Then she has to be great too because she's with him. Lifetime after lifetime after lifetime, she is beside him. So if she was irrelevant and just some background wife just there for the technicality of being married... Mm -hmm then he could have had 5,000 wives or she would have been nobody. But she's the one who keeps returning. Rahula Mata always comes back. It's that particular person who goes lifetime after lifetime. And if she's chosen to return and to be with him at each step of this journey, then she must have been great too. So Mm -hmm. she can't just be some puddle of tears who has no personality. She had to be the great being's match. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How could it be another way? Yeah. Can you kind of summarize the book for us? Um, 
for those for our listeners who haven't read it yet. Um, so it's called Yashodara, a novel about the Buddha's wife. Um, was that always the title, by no. the way? Or did you go there through? There was no title. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I had no title until it was going off to press. And he's like, you have to have a title. Um, so finally, I just said, it's going to be Yashodara. And he said, "It's nobody's going to know what that is. So he created the subtitle. I in my heart, that's not actually the title. Okay. It's just Yashodara. Mm-hmm. And that's just there for explanation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then the, what is what is your kind of narrative arc where the of the of the whole book, if you had to summarize it? And you know. it's her story. It's mm-hmm. her telling her, her life as it was being married to him. So instead of telling his life story, it was telling hers. And obviously, he has a big part to play. But it's from her perspective. It's what she saw what she experienced as the one who was left behind, as the one who was also present for so much. Um, And it was also like a, I had to figure out how to make friends with the Buddha. Mm -hmm. That was a big part of what this book was about, was how do I know these stories and not be infuriated by him? I mean, the worst father, the worst husband. (laughs) I mean, he leaves when his son is born. He leaves her without so much as a goodbye. How do you study a tradition for 20-odd years and not be mad at him for that particular scene? So I needed to figure out how I could make friends with him in my imagination. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what the book was about in the end. And did it work? In the end, it did. Um, but the hardest scene for me to write that I rewrote about 20 times was the scene when he goes to see her to take, to take Rahula with him. Mm-hmm. Because to have him say, now I'm taking our son without him becoming a flaming jerk. <laughs> and at the first versions of it I wrote, everyone who read them just said, he seems like such a mm-hmm. edit, the word. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I had to rewrite that a lot. And that was like, by the time I got to that point of writing that scene, I realized that was my struggle. And and when I finished writing that scene, I thought, okay, now, now I'm friends with him again. <laughs> mm-hmm. But you can't be mad at the tradition that you're studying for 20 years. So you have to make peace with it. So I had to figure it out. How did you find the color and the ways to imagine the world of 5th century BCE India? How did, like, did you have images that were inspiring you? Or how did, how did you feel? Because the book is written with so much detail. Yeah. It's great, right? It's also so great. I did a trip uh, to northern India and Bihar a couple years ago and visited sites associated with the Buddha's life, like his birthplace, well, birthplace I went to many years ago, but um, went to Vaishali and I went to Mahabodhi and uh, Rajagriha to just kind of, I thought I need to go see these places properly. And I, I, was, I couldn't believe my naivety. I arrived in India. I mean, I've been there many times, but I hadn't been to these sites yet. And I thought, what was I thinking? <laughs> like, how would... India 2,500 years later have anything to do with what India looked like. It's like, would I go to Canada to a particular site and say, oh, if I see it, then I will understand what it was like 2,500 years ago? Like the overpopulation, the I mean, it was just, I couldn't even imagine any of what I was looking at was really relevant to helping me imagine. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of a funny trip in my head mm-hmm. was realizing I can't imagine mm-hmm. the world 2,500 years ago. Mm-hmm. It's not accessible to me. And we don't have much literature from 2,500 years ago. 
So one of the things that I say in my introduction is that it's actually not <laughs> based on India 2,500 years ago because I can't imagine it. So it's based, the imagination comes from the poetry and the hagiographies that came later. Mm-hmm. So it's um, a story that's based, you know, starts about 2,000 years ago and goes till present day <laughs> in terms of what I imagine, mm-hmm. which is how hagiographers before would write is that they would have the stories nobody really had the history we don't even know if the history is true so it's not about any kind of historical reality it's about the legends and the fables and the songs that were sung that tell these stories i built my story on their stories Mm -hmm. just as they built their stories on other stories i didn't build it on history Mm -hmm. because i have no access to it Mm -hmm. but the poetry and the plays and all of the literature that we have from 2,000 years ago onward, there's so much sensuousness and beauty, and the detail comes from there. What about the art? Did you look at any of the early, sure. I mean, Barhut Stupa, or, um, you know, there's, uh, the, the earliest things we have are like stone carvings. Right? I know, so, and everybody's almost naked in those. So <laughs> almost naked, yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, so I, I get the feeling she's clad, right? She's definitely clad. <laughs> So, yeah, some of that stuff, so the sensuousness from that art from the early period and until today um, is very evocative, but um, contem- But I'm assuming that people 2,000 years ago were dressed. Mm. And a lot of those early images reveal the body, but if you look very carefully, there's usually very thin kind of translucent um, coverings. Mm-hmm. Um, which is so interesting is that a lot of those what seem to be naked women on those carvings at Sanchi and Barhut and everywhere else, um, they're actually clothed. Mm-hmm. But like, you know, the shawl will have fallen to the side and the breasts are completely revealed or something. Um, so that's a really interesting phenomenon as to why mm-hmm. it's so sensual in those images. Um, I had to kind of, I couldn't quite have you show to run naked. Mm-hmm. I think that would have been bad. A different book. At yeah, least. <laughs> <laughs> not doing that book. <laughs> You've talked about imagining Yashodara as really the subject here and, and telling her story. But there were also a lot of other people that you invented, really created, right, in, in the space. Like her mother, her incredible mother, yeah. who's got all this really in, empowering wisdom to help to help her and develop her. So I, I was wondering, who who was it important for you or kind of the most pleasurable for you to to create? Invent. Yeah. The women. I I think the women are much stronger in this book. Mm-hmm. than the men probably. Um, I just imagined if she was the great being's match, then she had a great mom mm-hmm. because how else could it be? So she had to have a great mom. And then when she was a princess, she had to have a confidant. So she had to have a maidservant to talk to. So there were certain things that I had to take license with. Um, there are references to Yashodara's mom in the literature, but there's no story about her, nothing. There's just kind of like a genealogical list of her names. And her name is different in every text. So I had to take license in some areas to make the story full. Were there other people that were then a kind of struggle to David Datta was hard to mm. imagine because he's so vilified. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't make sense to me. So he's, a, he's like a caricature in the mm-hmm. literature often. Um, there are a few exceptions to this where he gets turned around, like in the Lotus Sutra, but um, generally he's very vilified and he's not a three-dimensional character. So it was difficult to figure out how to engage with him. I couldn't imagine him being just, like there has to be a reason. So I do put in a reason at one point of, uh, in this book, 
he and Ananda are brothers. That's not always the case. In some texts, they're brothers. In some texts, Ananda's brothers, someone else. But um, I had them as brothers and kind of opposite extremes of each other with like a dysfunctional family. And I make a brief reference to it. So Ananda is so devoted and almost like a li- little puppy dog um, to, to Siddhartha and Yashodra. And, you know, Devadatta is super um, jealous and envious of them. Um, and that they have a very harsh father at the center of it. It was strange, though, because I didn't really want to psychoanalyze them and kind of go into that kind of play of stuff. But I couldn't just leave it that he was like ultimate evil and Ananda was ultimate good. It's just too simplistic. Mm-hmm. So that was tricky for me. So mm-hmm. I just made a passing reference if people notice it, just so that I give some explanation and it humanizes both of them. But mm-hmm. the two of them were difficult for me. Mm-hmm. They're mm-hmm. too idealistic, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, the, the texts are giving you very black and white very frameworks. And too. Ananda as much. Like mm-hmm. he's just like the simpleton who's so sweet and always there and never achieves awakening until like the last minute before the first council where he's like pushing it out of his brain, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, so he can achieve the, attend the first council. He's like such a, he's an odd character, character too. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so with this, what... Um, what it, what do you think is the potential role for the public academic, right? Um, and I mean, you've written this wonderful work and you talked also about the why of your teaching to teach students to be better global citizens. But it seems to me that this, that creative writing that's going to reach probably a much broader audience mm-hmm. than some of our academic writing can or will, um, has, could have a lot of potential then also for creating other kinds of spaces so what do you do you see yourself as as doing that consciously or um I didn't do it consciously um I really did it because I wanted to do it Mm -hmm. you know like it um I've been getting this question a lot lately and I realized recently I I do have to be really clear that at the end of the day this was like my heart song Mm -hmm. (laughs) like I really wrote this because I wanted to write it Mm -hmm. whatever complicated personal reasons but I really wanted to do this. I mm-hmm. wanted to know the story in a different way. Mm-hmm. And I was really happy writing it. It wasn't mm-hmm. for like some kind of political act or mm-hmm. some kind of institutional rebellion or anything like that. It was, I was so happy writing this book. I have never been so happy writing than when I wrote this book. Mm-hmm. Like nothing, it, it was almost like a dreamy experience. I would wake up in the morning and all I wanted to do was write. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was exciting. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was almost like a love affair. You know, mm-hmm. I like had a love affair with this book mm-hmm. and I've never had that experience before. Uh, and I don't know if I'll have it again. So um, that's true mm-hmm. uh, and important. But I wonder now what's going to happen uh, or what it can mean to others. I don't know, but I didn't write it for it to mean anything to the institution. Mm-hmm. But um, if it encourages people to be a bit more playful, I think that might be nice. Um, one of the things that has been haunting me uh, was a couple years ago, right after Trump was elected, I was at the AAR, which is, um, if you don't know what it is, a monster conference, the biggest monster conference yeah. that religious studies AAR, people do. AAR, American Academy, Academy of, of Religion. Sorry, yeah. thank you. Yeah. Um, and we, it's about 10,000 scholars from around the world that kind of flock to a city and take over the city for a couple days. And um, it's overwhelming and people are presenting and hobnobbing and meeting and interviewing. It's very big. 
And there's this exhibit hall. And in the exhibit hall, um, all the academic publishers come out and they have all their books of just the last two years that they've published in the field of religious studies. Walking through the exhibit hall is more of a friendly experience than it used to be. And I was walking through everybody. It was in November, right after Trump was elected, and everybody was on edge. Um, and this editor um, came to see me, and he was completely panicked. And we started getting into this discussion, and he was really in a kind of state of hysteria. Um, and he said, you people are not doing your job. <laughs> and I went, what? And he says, you're not doing your job. I said, what am I not doing? I don't understand. Who's my people? And what are, what are you saying? And he said, the ivory tower is not doing its job because you guys are still just talking to each other and it's not trickling down and people are not educated about religion and people are not educated about almost anything and look what happened. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I felt mm -hmm. like he was putting Trump's election on my shoulders and just like, you did this. <laughs> you didn't do your job. It was a, a an odd conversation, mm. um, but I have been thinking about it ever since of what's our job? Mm -hmm. What is it that what is on our shoulders, actually? And is he right? You know, is there a moral imperative to the privilege of having all this education? I didn't write this book like an answer to Trump. <laughs> mm -hmm. There's like no connection to that at all. I wrote it because I wanted to write it. Um, but it has made me wonder, should we be doing more of this? Mm -hmm. You know, and every once in a while this conversation arises in the academy and we float it around and then we drop it. Um, but maybe we need to be taking it more seriously that um, we get this privilege. We didn't earn this. We earn it, but we don't. And what's our responsibility with that? How much are we supposed to be doing if we get this privilege to sp spend our time thinking we have to share our thinking. We have to, we, the problem I think with academia is it breeds such insecurity that we get to a point where we don't believe we know anything. And we can't speak about anything except for the one thing that we spent the last six years obsessively researching. On the one hand, that's wonderful because it provides us with a sense of precision and a sense of responsibility that we have to know what we're talking about before we talk and that's very good but we are probably way more educated than we realize and we know a lot more than we realize and maybe there's a real moral imperative that we need to find more ways to communicate so you told us that your thinking has really developed since writing the book um, and your relationship to to history. How has your teaching developed since writing the book? And uh, do you think about using creative writing or anything in classes or? Yeah. Um, but more because I want them to climb in. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I've started to realize is um, that we are very good at teaching our students how to stand outside or so we think, pretend to stand outside. We never really do. And look at something from the outside, which is a very dominant position to be in. Um, that we also maybe want to take time to show students how to climb in and try to take on an idea and take it seriously instead of just standing over it. Um, there's obviously power dynamics there. There's a lot of value to standing outside a tradition trying to understand it. But that there is value to climbing in without 
betraying your own morality and sense of self without betraying what is appropriate to a tradition and its context. But I think it gives us a bit more intellectual flexibility. Mm -hmm. I feel like when I was writing that book, the tradition became three dimensional, Mm -hmm. which it wasn't before. And I didn't know it wasn't until I did that. You know, I, I had this thought recently that when the Bodhisattva was bejeweled, you know, and wearing his crown and like is all decked up as the prince, or even afterwards when like jewels like manifest on him as the Buddha, I always just see the jewels, right? And so I can describe there are jewels on the Buddha's body. But when I was writing this book, I realized, oh, but they were probably shiny. And then I thought, so when he moved, light reflected. And then wait a minute, when he moved, then the jewels moved and they probably jingled and then they swayed. And then you can hear the Buddha walking because the jewels were moving and clanging against each other. Like there's just, there's a beauty and a sensuousness to that presence that I had no capacity to appreciate until I was like walking beside him and Mm -hmm. I thought his jewels are chiming. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't know why I find that so exciting, but I find that really exciting. I love it. I can't get over that. That detail of his jewels chiming and that I could hear him coming. Yeah. You know, around the corner. Yeah. This rich texture of the world. And then, I mean, I feel like it connects for for me to how you've also then imagined all these people. Because for me in reading the book... It's like, oh, no, but of course they were always there. Right. Even they, they had to be there. I mean, his his world was a landscape of a lot of other people. So just because we haven't told their stories before, heard their stories specifically, doesn't mean they there. weren't there. They were there. Right. All these things that were absent in our imagination become present when you try to imagine them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's really fun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's great. It's really exciting. Well, a few um, people have been using it in their classes, mm-hmm. and people have told me that it, like, you don't know anything about Buddhism, and then you read this book, and you suddenly understand mm-hmm. things that were just theoretical before. So that's nice. I didn't expect that either. Mm-hmm. So I'm very surprised. I was very, I was nervous. Mm-hmm. I was quite nervous. Mm-hmm. So, but I actually realized I didn't ask, how, when did it start and end? Like, for the, was it a fast writing process, or has this been a years and years project for you? It took me about three years to write. Okay. But I rewrote it so many times because I didn't know what I was doing. Mm-hmm. I didn't. I didn't know how to write a novel, so I had a lot of like steps to learn. I also um, something that was really funny was uh, my mom. I told my mom at one point. I said, "Mom, I'm going to write a novel," and she said, "Oh, like with dialogue?" And I went, oh, "Dialogue." <laughs> I went home and I deleted everything I wrote and I started again because I didn't put any dialogue. When do we do dialogue? Have you ever written a dialogue? No. Nope. We don't do dialogue. So then I opened up novels in my library and I had to look to see how dialogue. <laughs> I was like, oh, open quote, dialogue, comma, close quote, he said, period. Ha, huh, got it. <laughs> so like I literally had, so I, I went through a lot of stage. I had to unteach mm-hmm. myself, my academic kind of standing outside, mm-hmm. which is what I was doing. I was standing mm-hmm. away from it and just describing. Mm-hmm. And then I had to become it and I had to speak in her voice. Mm-hmm. And that was like mm-hmm. mind blowing. Yeah. The first time I wrote dialogue, I was like, whoa, I'm in. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was like the secret door that I didn't know until I got the key. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So it was a long process of teaching myself how to write literary yeah. instead of academic. Yeah. 
And also then, to, but to be in a really different relationship to the subject yeah. too, and the object, like to totally. The desire to put footnotes, I cannot even tell you. I wanted to footnote everything. It took me a few months before I finally relaxed. Mm-hmm. And then I was writing. Mm-hmm. And then when I finished writing it, I was like, I need the footnotes. I noticed so, all those notes yeah. at the back about <laughs> so at the end the sources I went back. for things. Yeah, yeah. So then I wanted to explain what I did and how I did what I did, so that you know students or whoever could read and see which text inspired which scene. Mm-hmm. But I had to drop it completely. Mm-hmm. I couldn't have written it if I had the notes going the whole time. So right. when I finished the book, then I went back and for a month I had like my whole library on my desk and I was like trying to remember everything mm-hmm. and I, so I double checked everything I was able mm-hmm. to yeah get my footnotes in the end yeah yeah and notes we there's there a lot of people notes. who will still appreciate those too but I loved my end notes yeah no, they're, they're cool <laughs> exactly yeah and for yeah but I can I can imagine that yeah you needed to free yourself of writing them for the creative yeah I work. couldn't do it mm-hmm. I had to just write mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it was fun thank you so much Vanessa for that was really fun for talking with us for a whole hour on on tape and yeah, it was really fun. I love the book. And I'm, I'm so glad. I'm Thank inspired you. by your teaching. And well, I so hope you do something creative and fabulous. Oh, I hope so too. One day, I know it actually, it's, it's exciting just to imagine the possibility of it. Thank you to Vanessa for sharing so much with us that day and for speaking so honestly about your teaching and for being our guinea pig. We wish you very well as you continue to learn and grow as a teacher. And thank you all so much for listening and for being here with us for this conversation. For references to the resources that we discussed in this episode, please check our show notes. And if you like what you heard, please subscribe to our podcast. This has been a really interesting conversation, and we'd love to hear more from you. Maybe there's something that you've shifted perspective on in your teaching. We'd love to hear from you about that. So please get in touch. Find us on Facebook. Send us an email. Let us know about your questions. A very big special thanks to our creative director, Dr. Betsy Moss, who's in charge of making these podcasts here in Toronto. Thank you for listening. Be well.